Hi, I'm Emmy Award-winning TV reporter Maras Gevocampo, joined by Pulitzer Prize winner Wesley Lowry and former senior magazine editor Keith Reed. This week on Run Tell This, we're joined by Yamish Alcinder, White House correspondent for the PBS NewsHour and NBC and MSNBC contributor. Our reactions to the assault on the Capitol, is this the beginning of a new era of white supremacist violence led by Donald Trump? Plus, a first-hand account of the mayhem from a D.C.-based videographer who was with the mob the entire day. So here's what's happened since we taped last week's episode. The U.S. topped 4,000 COVID deaths in a single day for the first time ever, surpassing the death toll of 9-11 in one single day. But that was not the biggest news story of the week. The state of Georgia elected two Democratic senators for the first time in two decades, including the state's first ever black senator, effectively giving Democrats control of both houses of Congress and making Donald Trump the first president to lose the presidency, the House, and the Senate since 1932. But that was not the biggest story of the week. The biggest story of the week is that mobs of armed white supremacists attempted to overturn the results of a free and fair election with a violent attack on the Capitol. An act of sedition incited by the president of the United States against the democracy he took an oath to protect. Our country has had enough. We will not take it anymore. And that's what this is all about. And to use a favorite term that all of you people really came up with, we will stop the steal. We're going to walk down to the Capitol. And we're going to cheer on our brave senators and congressmen and women. And we're probably not going to be cheering so much for some of them. Because you'll never take back our country with weakness. You have to show strength and you have to be strong. And despite this event being openly planned by domestic terrorists for weeks leading up to it, including having shirts printed with the words Civil War and the date of January 6th on them, law enforcement was woefully unprepared. Capitol Police were easily overwhelmed and crowds of rioters successfully invaded the Capitol for only the second time in U.S. history and the first time by a non-foreign entity. Lawmakers came perilously close to violence or possibly even death, evacuated as the mob descended on the Capitol, armed with firearms, explosives, and chanting, hang Pence, after the president falsely claimed the vice president had the power to overturn the election but was refusing to do so. Dozens of officers were injured, and two are now dead, one succumbing to his injuries after being beaten by a fire extinguisher, another days later by suicide. In total, five people lost their lives, including a rioter shot by police who for weeks leading up to the insurrection had been posting social media videos espousing far-right ideology. Twenty people are now facing federal charges, and the investigation is just beginning. Officials say they expect hundreds will be eventually rounded up. Those arrested include Proud Boys Hawaii founder Nick Ox, the guy pictured with his feet on Nancy Pelosi's desk, the man shown wearing full military gear and carrying zip ties, 
An Alabama man charged after authorities found 11 homemade bombs, an assault rifle, and a handgun in his truck parked just two blocks from the Capitol. The one carrying the lectern, whose own defense attorney seemed unable to defend him. You have a photograph of our client, you know, in, in a building, um, you know, unauthorized to be there with, uh, you know, what appears to be a podium or a lectern. I'm not exactly sure which one it is called, um, but, but that's what we have. And the guy wearing the fur and the horns, who reportedly hasn't eaten anything in jail because they won't feed him organic food. Many were identified because they spoke directly to camera, live streaming, gleefully posting social media videos, giving interviews, openly admitting to their crimes, showing their faces, even giving their government names. Ma'am, what, what happened to you? I got maced. You got maced. By, by the police. <laughs> and what happened? You were trying to go inside the yeah, Capitol? Yeah, I, I made it like a foot inside and they pushed me out and they maced me. What's your, what's your name? Where are you from? My name is Elizabeth. I'm from Knoxville, Tennessee. And why did you want to go in? We're storming the Capitol. It's a revolution. Now, there are questions about potential law enforcement involvement. Two Capitol police officers have been suspended and at least 10 more under investigation for appearing to assist the rioters in real time. The Capitol Police Chief has stepped down, and he's replaced in the interim by former Assistant Chief Yogananda D. Pittman, who is a black woman. And now the nation is bracing for more violence in the days leading up to the inauguration. That is what has happened in less than a week. Now, I heard about this from Keith. I was working out and my phone rang and it was Keith. And he said to me, are you watching this shit? Keith, what was your reaction when you saw what was happening? Oh. You know, it, it to, to be a person who communicates for a living, um, who for 20 years has, has been a, a journalist, a writer, uh, and a broadcaster, it is really difficult to come up with the words for what was going through my mind at that moment. I needed, I needed, I called you because I needed to, to talk to somebody to like make sense of what I was seeing because I was in such disbelief at what I was seeing. It was stunning. Um, in the depths, the lengths that, you know, the, the, the ways in which in which it was stunning and in which it was gripping to watch just kept getting deeper and deeper and deeper. I can't believe they're in. Where is the National Guard? I can't believe none of these people are, are have been are, like they're not arresting these people. They're not using violence against these people. I kind of watched this and was shocked by what was playing out. Not that not that I was surprised that people based on the president's rhetoric would do this or not that I was ignorant of these groups in existence, just the reality of something that you knew was theoretically possible actually playing out in front of you. I would, you know, I, um, in COVID times have had trouble sleeping. And so my sleep schedule is all over the place. And so I remember I was watching the debate, uh, the congressional debate and drifted off and then I woke up and the Capitol had been stormed and I had like 700 text messages. Did you think it was, was a dream? Like, I was like, what is going on? Like, what? <laughs> wait, what? Why was everyone asking me if I'm safe? And then I, and then I, you know, my mom's like, don't go out. Cause the other thing is being a reporter and a reporter, especially who covers groups like this and people know, it, most people assumed I might already be out there in the crowd or that I would get up and go. And I was like, I'm not. I'm not touching that. I'm gonna be here on the couch. And so, but it was this, it was just very disorienting to like wake up after drifting off for 35 minutes and I was watching a boring Mike Pence congressional thing and suddenly 
they're like Nazis in the speaker's lot. I'm like, wait, what's going on? Our guest co-host this week is Yamiche Alcinder, White House correspondent for the PBS NewsHour, and she's been covering the president for the last four years and has been on the direct receiving end of his vitriol many, many times. And as we've mentioned in previous episodes, Wesley is working on a book about white supremacy. So a lot of great insights here today. But before we dig into this, we have a firsthand account of what happened on January 6th. Anthony Tillman is a DC-based videographer. He watched through his lens as everything unfolded. So you were there the whole day. You were right Mm -hmm. with the crowds the whole day. What did you see? I got there around 11 o'clock in the morning and majority of them was honestly just asking me for directions, you know, like, (laughs) Hey, you know, you know where the nearest Metro is, you know, I'm like, wow. Okay. So it was, I mean, it seemed, it seemed kind of like normal, you know, like, like a normal protest at that moment. And then um, around like noon, I saw like a group of them like leaving. So I I was literally just like, where y'all going? And they was like, well, to the Capitol. And I was like, to the Capitol. And I was like, okay, cool. So I just started following like that large group. So it was like a large group, maybe like almost like 200, 100 to 200 people. Then maybe like a 30 minutes later, um, you know, once we got to the Capitol, it was a, a barricade um, pretty much at the first barricade at the East entrance. It was maybe um, like, I say like four or five um, Capitol Police at that barrier. The Capitol Police was pretty much like, you know, outnumbered at this point. It was like, hey, you know, they was like, get us past. We pay your taxes. You know, we pay your taxes. And they was like, you know, just yelling at them, just like, let me go, let me go. And what are you thinking during all this? Like, I was well, the- on my way there. I was like, these people crazy. They about to get arrested. <laughs> I mean, you know, the Capitol Police is, is well known in D.C. Those are people that will shoot you. You don't even turn the wrong way going to the Capitol. So at that, I was, as they was even going there, I'm sitting there. I, I actually tweeted, these people are stupid. They're going to get arrested. <laughs> like, they're going to get no Capitol. So, no, like, a, and that's, and that's what stopped me. Anthony, yeah. you're right, though. Like, you know, for people who don't live, I mean, we got listeners who don't live in D.C. who don't get it. What What's... One of the things about the Capitol Police is that they're hyper aggressive. Like you're walking your dog or riding your bike and you go the wrong way and suddenly like seven cops come out. Like, what are you doing? Where are you? And you're like, it's trying to like it's they're very protective in all these strange ways about the space. And so, like I said, as the as the first um, barricade um, kind of went through, it was a second barricade, you know, pretty much closer to the, the Capitol entrance. And, and at that point, um, it was maybe almost like um, probably like almost a thousand to like two thousand people out there, um, you know, and, and that's when it got it got real hectic at this point. And, and they're outnumbered. Like the Capitol Police was kind of outnumbered. So I was assuming at that point that it was going to kind of call for like backup or just some kind of help, like 20, 30 people got through the barricade. Now, at that point, the Capitol Police kind of, they was they was trying to hold them back, but they just kind of got outnumbered. And that's when it got really violent. It was just like, you know, everybody was just bomb rushing them, attacking them. Um, I, I seen a few, uh, I seen a few people with cameras, they was getting attacked. So they, they, you know, they was calling out the media, like, you know, fake news. Like, so anybody that was pretty much media at that point, it was just kind of getting, it was pretty much in the way. So at that point, they kind of had the Capitol surrounded. I was following the crowd. I was kind of like in the back um, of the crowd. It was like, that's when they kind of got in. So I just kind of saw um, security officers like kind of no weapons. 
so they was like regular security guards. And, and I was assuming, and I, I just heard, get back, get back, you know, like Jim trying to hold them back, you know, and then I, I just, they was like, let me, shut up, shut up. So that's pretty much when um, I was just like, you know, I heard like a gunshot um, on the corner. So I heard, but what I thought it was like a, a flash bomb, because it was like a loud noise, like, Poof. and I said, oh, snap, like what was going on? So I just saw a whole crowd of people running over there. One of the protesters came up to me and said, somebody got shot. Did you get the sense that they were organized, that there was a plan and a goal? So everybody who was pretty much up front seemed like they was kind of like the leaders of, of the pack. I was assuming that they wanted to just take over and, you know, just like, you know, stop the process, you know, like get inside to really stop what was going on inside. And I think that was the overall goal. The people that was outside was just kind of like, like, yeah, we, we got like we got control of the capital. We going like, you know, this is like big for us. Like you don't really know like the harassment that we felt. Like I, I literally had, you know, people like push, like walk up to me and say, hey, you're fake news, man. And, and you know, just like, you know, harassing me the whole day. You know, like you're fake news, man. Anthony, thank you for, for sharing your story. I really appreciate it. I like I applaud your bravery that like you were attacked by the Proud Boys in December and you're like, I'm going to go back out to the Stop the Steal rally in January. <laughs> so like, <laughs> it is not for the faint of heart and it is important work and we really appreciate it. And we're glad you're safe. Um, let's bring in our guest co-host now, our friend Yamish Alcinder. Yamish, if I can start with you, um, with what we saw this week, were you surprised that this is how this culminated? Uh, it's a tough question. Keep it um, real. <laughs> first, I have to say thanks for having me on. Um, it's just good to talk to all y'all that I've admired for so long. Baby Wesley, with, who grew his beard now. I mean, there's just so much growth. Um, <laughs> um, but I, I really just admire the work that you do, Keith, the work that you've done, Mar. I mean, you guys are just, you guys are, 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 are giants in your own. Um, but I think when I think about what happened, was I surprised? No. I, I, I was watching this and I was thinking, are these the people in my inbox? Are these the people who call me? Yes, and, and, yes, and, and, it was all of them. And give and are, are saying death threats. Are these the people? This is what How they look like. You harassed. Um, I mean, I feel like covering Trump every time he yells at me, there's like a legion of people who then, of course, target me. Um, and he yells at me often. And then, you know, my name is unique and I look pretty unique. So I, I, I people know what I look like and um, get triggered when they see me on TV or wherever. I will say that, but I think going back to what it was like to watch it, I think to me, I was watching that and I was still in some ways, I wasn't surprised, but I will say I was, I was stunned by the fact that they weren't getting arrested. Um, and I was stunned by the fact that they made it into the Capitol because I think we all knew that the Trump presidency was going to have to end badly he, because he wasn't conceding. He had just given this speech an hour before saying, we're going to march to the Capitol, we fight on. So you knew something was going to go down at the Capitol. But I think I was stunned by the idea that they actually made it into the Capitol, um, that there were people, that there were lawmakers having to to to, to be ushered away from this, from this growing mob and that the Capitol Police just didn't seem like they had had it together, that they weren't able to secure the building. So I've been in Ferguson with Wesley and in Baltimore and in so many other cities where people try to try to storm the a local police station and they don't make it in. 
So in my mind, I didn't think, of course, they're not going to make it into the U.S. Capitol. It's the U.S. Capitol. I've been in that building a thousand times. They search me. They go through my bag. They wand me down. There's no way that they're going to make it into the Capitol. And then when they when they did and there weren't shots being fired immediately, like, of course, there was um, the, the unfortunate death of the one woman. But to be frank, I thought there were going to be more people that were shot because I kept thinking to myself, we can't even play the if they were a black game because these people would be dead. Right. I couldn't even in my mind when I'm th- when I started thinking like, oh, how do what would this be if this was Obama? I started getting text messages. Can you imagine if they were Muslim? I was like, I can't because they wouldn't be walking anymore. They'd be dead. It would be a massacre. So I can't even imagine someone making it to Nancy Pelosi's office that looks like me and that has an afro because that person wouldn't wouldn't make it there. Simply. I don't I don't think they'd make it there. And I think that it was I was thinking this is the culmination of what we thought was going to be people playing with fire, but not getting burned. I t- I've interviewed so many people that are establishment Republicans or people who wanted something out of President Trump, who saw, you know, the, 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 the Supreme Court justices get get confirmed, who saw all of the all of the kind of conservative goals get realized in President Trump and thought they were kind of playing with fire. And then it burned. And then it finally actually was not just walking up to the line and walking back. I think there are so many times President Trump walked up to the line and then people thought, well, it's never going to get that crazy. And then here it is. It got that crazy. And one other thing, I'm being Haitian-American. My parents fled a dictator. I'm American because the country that of my ancestors was taken over by a dictator and we had to leave. And I kept thinking to myself, all the interviews that I'd done with immigrants just a few weeks ago for a story for NewsHour, um, immigrants who came to this country who were terrified of President Trump. And this one Haitian man, um, because my people always, I think, say it right. He said, people should be worried because he has all these people who are mobilized, who are armed, and they could cause violence. And to me, that guy, Francois Pierre-Louis, it was like a premonition. He was like, look, I know what this looks like. I know how this ends. And he was right. Wesley, what can you, what insight can you shed on these groups? It's hard, even with these groups, it's hard, it's hard to paint with a broad brush because it's kind of like, it's like a buffet. It's a little bit of everything, right? You have to think of them in their collective, not all the individuals. But a few things are true. I think about this all the time, that when you use incendiary language, uh, and whether that's incendiary language about immigrants, about Muslims, about black people, about your political opponents, about Jews, about the election, right? What it does, especially if you're a powerful person, if you have platforms, if you have people who listen to you, there are people who believe the things you say. I think sometimes, like those of us in the political conversation or the chattering class, we kind of, we get it, right? We're used to this political rhetoric, even though Trump's way beyond what's typical. We understand that when a politician talks, you're not actually literally supposed to believe the things they're saying. Some of it's bluster, some of it's, right? That's, there are millions of people who believe the literal words, right? And what happens is you end up deputizing those people. So for example, if there were truly waves of rapists and murderers at the southern border, it would be our responsibility to go grab a gun and get to the southern border and protect America, right? Like if, if the thing was actually happening the way it's being described, to be good citizens, it would actually be our job to go stop this crisis, right? And so what you end up seeing here is you have these Trump supporters, uh, and, and these are really the true believers, the farthest of the far, the conspiratorial they're attracted to him as a strong man, as a populist, who have deep, many of them, most of them, deep white supremacist views. They've been ginned up forever. When you look at the QAnon stuff and these other conspiracy groups, 
it builds on top of what is some very basic level kind of white supremacist conspiracy theory going back. That white supremacists believe there's going to be a great race war and it's going to end and the white people are going to win because they have more guns. And it's, they actually believe that. Right? White supremacists have largely the ideology of, of actual, and I'm not meaning white supremacists like colloquially, like, you know, like housing discrimination. I'm talking about like actual people who would describe themselves as racist, right? They, they no longer believe that, well, we're just going to send all the black people back or we can segregate. They truly believe one day America will be a white nation. There'll be a race war and they'll win, right? So this QAnon stuff, factors into that, right? Because all of it is about, you know, a day when the evil people who are secretly running everything are going to be overthrown and there's going to be a new world. And so it plays into all of these things. All the initial white supremacists, the initial clans, the, the uh, birth of the nation stuff, all of that was about, they genuinely believed they were still winning. They, they believed that, um, that emancipation for black people, that Equality for black people was something that they could defeat, right? That the norm was still a white supremacist society. What happens post Brown v. Board, post civil rights, post a black president, like in this era we're in currently, is the white supremacists are, I mean, it, it's literally like, this is our last stand. They believe they've lost the nation. They believe it's over. They believe there has to be an actual war for them to win it back. Brought me back to something that I wrote in the aftermath um, for a blog called Momentum on the Medium platform, which is about, uh, which is all dedicated to, to tackling anti-black racism. Um, and I wrote this piece, if, if you guys will indulge me, I just wanna read from it a little bit because I think it capsulizes a little bit of what, what Wesley was saying. Um, Trumpism's real organizing principles of racism, codification of white privilege and defense of the former through white mob violence were still standing after the National Guard finally showed up. Last week's riot validated what history has always shown and what Trump has known he, he could exploit since he was a candidate. That racialized violence, even to the point of treason, is tolerable in the United States if the perpetrators and their, are white and their political aim is disenfranchising or oppressing black people. That, to me, was the heart of what this was about. Trump has known he could weaponize, which is the belief that ultimately... It's this is an us versus them. It, it's we want our country back. We, it's make America great again. It's all of those those things are capsulized in the idea that Wesley talked about that that really. In this in this country, white supremacy has always carried with it the threat of violence. What I was thinking about when I was watching, because I had just read this like days prior, I'm reading Les Payne's um, book on Malcolm X, his biography of Malcolm X, and it recounts a story they had, had moved to the area where this white mob was seeking a black prisoner. They wanted custody of him. And so they went to the sheriff's office and they stormed the building. They pulled the sheriff out, who was white. They put a noose around his neck. And they say, if you don't give us this prisoner, then we're going to hang you. And of course, what happened? They turned over the man and he was lynched. So it's this long tradition in America of white people feeling that they have the mandate to take things into their own hand. Because as Joy Reid pointed out in the clip that has now gone viral, they believe this is their country. White Americans aren't afraid of the cops. White Americans are never afraid of the cops, even when they're committing insurrection even when they're engaged in attempting to occupy
occupy our capital to steal the votes of people who look like me. Because in their minds, they own this country, they own that capital, they own the cops, the cops work for them, and people like me have no damn right to try to elect a president. Because we don't get to pick the president, they get to pick the president, they own the president, they own the White House, they own this country. And so when you think you own it, you own the place, you ain't afraid of the police because the police are you and the police reflect back to them. We're with you. You're good. We're not going to hurt you because you're not them. Guarantee you if that was a Black Lives Matter protest in D.C., there would already be people shackled, arrested or dead. When the system is working in favor of their aims, they don't really have to do much. It's when the system stops working in favor of their aims that they really have to take things into their own hands. And I've been revisiting a lot of history over the last week, um, in particular pre-World War II Nazi Germany. And it would have seemed to me like an, a gross over-exaggeration a very short time ago to be looking for parallels between the United States in 2021 and pre-Nazi Germany. But as I was revisiting this history, I realized how many very scary parallels there were. And one of the ones that scared me the most was the fact that Hitler staged an unsuccessful coup in 1923. That was 15 years before the world came to know him as a monster. And there were so many teeny tiny steps leading up to him being a globally recognized monster. Teeny, teeny, teeny that the world allowed because it wasn't worth the trouble. We just got out of World War I. We don't really feel like going to war again. We're still rebuilding our economy. Our men are tired of fighting. We're going to let this go. We're going to let this go. We're going to let this go. So when I look at what's happening in this country, and I have to ask myself, is this the prelude to a civil war? I cannot believe I'm having to ask that question, but history suggests it's not an unreasonable question. So Yamish, in terms of where this president goes from here, you know, e even if he's prevented from ever holding public elected office again, is it possible that he goes on to lead an insurgency with 74 million supporters? It's a it's a good question. It's a question that I've been thinking about um, because I think before this, at least he still had his megaphones. He still had Twitter. He still had all of these different people, um, Republicans who would have welcomed him to come stump for them and, and to try to get them elected. Um, now it's really tough for me to say because I think obviously there are 74 million people who backed him. Um, I was just talking to one of my best friends um, and, and she she lives in a city in North Carolina where there are people um, who are looking at this and saying, well, some of this was freedom of speech um, and some of this was people being horrified. So I don't know. It's I, I've been just basically the question I've been asking myself is how many of these 74 million people are OK with what happened on but Wednesday? But even if it's 10 million. I don't if it's a one seventh. That's, and that's 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 the question, right? The question is how much power does he have and how many of those people are willing to get on board with the tactics and the and the views you they already of course voted for someone who made it very clear what his agenda was, made it very clear how he felt about black people and immigrants. Um I'm I'm just wondering kind of where President Trump goes now. I I think he retains a lot of his power. He retains a lot of his um, ability to sway people, to try to move them to do things. I think we just have to figure out how he does that. I don't think it's I don't I think it's a question that we have to ask. I'm just really as a reporter trying to figure out 
how he does it, what it looks like. I don't think that this could be the last we've seen of these people, the last we've seen of these coups. I mean, the, the reporting is that they're now looking at staging these sorts of events at different capitals. The Michigan um, Michigan officials are now saying the Michigan state capital is not safe, Saying, telling people don't come down here. We don't know if we can hold these people back. Um, so I think that we are definitely in a in a period where things are unstable and where things are really scary. Um, and we could be in a place in a couple of years where we are in a place where we may be at war with each other. I, I don't think that it's hyperbole to think that there are people in this country who, after watching President Trump for four years and backing him in, in that way, um, that they fundamentally think that with his with him saying that the election was lost, that they're now facing an unjust system and they have to take things into their own hands again and again and again, especially because let's remember, at least in my mind, Part of this starts with President Trump. Part of this starts with a black man in the White House in Barack Obama. We're going to have a black woman in the vice presidency and a, and, and a president who has welcomed in a lot of diversity in his cabinet. So people are going to continue to see the images um, of that, that anger them. They're going to continue to see diversity. They're going to continue to see black people thriving. They're going to continue to see all of these different images. And that's just going to fuel the anger um, that, that, that the white supremacy that they want to see enacted and, and upend people's lives, that it's not quite working in the way that they want it to be working. It's cliche at this point that like Trump's a symptom, not the disease, right? That he just exploited all of these things. <laughs> he didn't create them. He didn't invent them. He didn't, you know. Yeah, and as I'm listening to you talk, I'm also thinking there are political incentives for continuing to stoke this. You see Josh Hawley, you see Ted Cruz, you see the people who, even after the Capitol was stormed, I was surprised and stunned to see people continuing to object to the election, continuing to object to the count because they still wanted to prove something about what they thought, thought of as their loyalty to the president, their loyalty to the cause. So I think when, when I, I remember being, and I'm sure maybe you guys were, were, were dragged into some of these meetings in 2012 and 2011, the Republican Party would have these kind of salons with black journalists where they would try to tell you, here's how we're trying to get black people and Hispanic people into the party. And then Trump comes along, does the exact opposite of what the what the Republican Party was trying to do, which was really widen the umbrella. And instead, he makes it all about immigration, all about kind of using racist rhetoric. And that gets him elected and gets him better numbers than Mitt Romney and other Republicans. And some sort of light bulb goes out, it goes off in at least some Republicans' minds saying, well, then we're going to go with that. We're not going to go with the autopsy of 2012. Like, that obviously didn't work. Let's go with this. So I think there's also going to be this political incentive to continue to stoke this idea um, that this is the way that you win elections. But he hasn't been tremendously politically successful recently. I mean, he, of course, he won the election and he surprised a lot of people in that way. But since then, he's shown that his only agenda is the aggrandizement of himself, period. Zero, his zero other principle than Donald Trump. And he lost the House and the Senate. He lost Georgia for the first time in 25 years. So what? there were more people that were mobilized on the left than on the right. Sure, he got historic huge numbers, but he didn't get bigger numbers than the left of people that said, no, we are not going down this path. So how successful has he been politically? Well, that's the thing. That, well, you have to couple that with the idea that he also, to a lot of Republicans' um, annoyance, was depressing his own base, saying that the election was rigged, saying that that they that they shouldn't do they shouldn't use mail-in ballots, saying that people should vote in person. So there was also some that the president himself was was downplaying the, the all the critical ways that people needed to vote. So in some ways, he depressed his own turnout. Um, I think I, I think you're right that this wasn't a close election, right? I think uh, Mitch McConnell of all people said this, even though of course he said it 
at the last hour, literally the last hour, um, he said this wasn't a close election. But I think there's still, if you're someone who's, who's living in a ruby red state, if you're a Republican who's going to be primary, there is still political incentive to possibly um, lean toward this Trumpism. I don't know if it means that you're going to be able to win back the House and Senate with the Trumpism. But I think if you're a Republican and you're looking at the Republican base and how to win them, um, you might be incentivized to still lean toward President Trump. But it does feel very much like cooler heads, if you will, true patriots, true lovers of democracy are trying to pull things back a little bit. And what I'm referring to specifically are these corporations. And that has actually encouraged me tremendously because money talks in this country. And when you have some of the biggest companies in the country saying we are not going to make any more political contributions, at least for the time being, to the so-called traitor caucus, um, that to me is the only hope for reeling this back and for setting a precedent for future politicians that this is not the path you want to go down because it's going to affect your fundraising. Um, Yamish, do you think this is going to have an impact on Cruz, on Holly? Also, their hometown newspapers have called for them to resign. Do you think they survive this or have they gone too far? Is this is this ultimately going to end their political careers? I think it's a I think it's a good question. I'm not quite sure I know how it ends because I was talking to a source yesterday who's close to President Trump who said, well, if they are censored, um, if both Josh Hawley and Ted Cruz are censored, it could play into their hands because they could then make the case, oh, well, we're being targeted because we're for free speech. Of course, we don't want the people who are violent to be part of the Capitol. But here are the, here's the left overreaching and here's the left. I think that's something that the voters are really going to decide. Wesley, what do you think the next few weeks look like? You know, we have inauguration coming up in a week. I actually think there's even a danger in confining the timeline, right? I, I actually think there's a world, I mean, I'm, look, I'm, I'm in the district. I'm actively thinking and have some angst and anxiety about what's to come um, in a, inauguration weekend. But there's also a world, having covered some of this space, that inauguration weekend relatively goes out off without a hitch, right? Law enforcement certainly can't behave the way they did the last time. You know, there's going to be Will they be, be more prepared, level. do you think? I don't think they have a choice. There's such a level of scrutiny in this moment that they have to be more prepared. It's just not even optional. What I think is also true is, is there, there could also be, I, I think we could see more chaos at the state capitals than we do in D.C., right? Some of these people got it out or they took the three vacation days they had, <laughs> oh, you know, and, and, uh, and um, but because the plan was to stop the steal. There wasn't going to be an inauguration. They weren't contingency planning on another one, right? I, I would be very surprised if the current president, once he's out of office, isn't traveling the country, still having rallies, ginning up all types of this, having a running commentary in public about. And so this energy is not going anywhere. Uh, Yamish, if I can end by asking for a personal reflection um, in doing your job, do you feel safe doing your job? Do you, when, do you have security? Do you feel like you need security? Is it something that concerns you? I feel safe doing my job because uh, most of my job in this COVID world is either going to the White House or doing it from home. Um, I think if I was going to be out 
covering the protest, then I would be going with security, which sounds bizarre because I've never gone to a protest with security. I usually want to kind of directly connect with people, but I don't think there's any way, given what I saw at the Capitol and given who I know that these people know who I am, that I would ever want to walk into a crowd of Trump supporters on, on the lawn of the Capitol without uh, a number of people around me to keep me safe. And even then, to tell you the truth, I'm a little scared to even do it then. I can't, because I, I just think that it, I, we could be overwhelmed. It's so easy if the Capitol can be overwhelmed and they can storm the Capitol. I think they could probably overwhelm me and maybe three or four other people who are there to try to keep me safe. Uh, and maybe that to me is part of what gives me goosebumps when I even just think about that. Like literally, as I, as I said that sentence, I got goosebumps because... I think like, have they succeeded in making me scared of them? Have they succeeded in making me not want to cover them? Because I am now like, mm, I don't think I really want to go there, which is the opposite of me in every other protest. Every other protest, I want to be there and mingle and talk to people and figure out why they're there. And I, I just don't think it feels fit. It feels safe, maybe because of my personal experience and the fact that I know that Trump supporters know exactly who I am. Um so I, it, it's, it's, it's a tough thing, but I, I think in some ways that's part of the, the, the feeling terrorized by all of this is feeling like the thing that I would naturally do, the purpose that I think I was created to do um, is being hampered by the idea that I, they made me feel unsafe doing that when it comes to, to protests. I will, of course, continue to cover the White House, um, but it, it, I don't know if I would ever go to a Trump protest at the Capitol right now. Bessie, I see you nodding. Would you, would you volunteer for protest, Trump protest? I'm not duty? going anywhere near these people. <laughs> No, <laughs> I would have to. Uh, no, agree. <laughs> I, I no. Uh, and, 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 and but I agree with you, Mish. That like there's a. I also feel conflicted. Like I I knew when I saw what was going on the other day. I knew immediately I wasn't going anywhere near it, and also didn't like that I felt that way. That my inclination throughout my entire career has been to run towards the story, to be on the ground, to cover the thing even in occasions where it's potentially dangerous or rough or what and the I, and the fact that i had such a clarity mm -mm, i ain't going anywhere near this was something that was disorienting for me that i have no desire to be anywhere near the mall on inauguration i'm going to sit here in my black ass house in my black ass neighborhood knowing that i'm safe <laughs> like uh, because they're not coming over here but like it's that sense of like i no desire to do this Eat for, I mean, Mimish and I are people who know, we've been friends for, since we were kids, kids, right? Our journalists, journalists who enjoy doing the thing and being in the space and interviewing the people and it is what we came up doing and have always done, right? We, we, you know, some people, we all know this, some people uh, spend time on TV and they couldn't really do the street stuff. And they're laptop, they're laptop reporters. Right. <laughs> That's not that's not Yumi Shelson, right? She could go to any place in the country, interview any person, get the and and I think that that and so at a point when you have journalists like that who have been, by the way, in dangerous scenarios, in places that have felt unsafe, who are like, I'm not going here. It, it speaks to again, it's not just a personal decision; it's also a it, it's also an educated assessment of the level of danger. Drop me off in any street corner in Chicago, I'll be fine. I'm not going to these Trump. I, I'm not doing that. I, I don't. I don't need to be in that space. I don't need. And, and it, it says something about the vitriol that these people have towards the media, towards people of color, in support of the president. Not not even towards anyone, just in general. I, I don't need any of that. I think it's a distinction between it being in a dangerous environment and being a target. 
is that you know as a black person and as a recognizable member of the media, and especially for you, Yumi, someone who has directly questioned the president to his face, you know that you are a target. Yes. And the one thing I, I wanted to add, because I feel like we talked about kind of where we were. I was at the White House when all this went down. So I heard and watched this from the White House. And I had this weird, surre- surreal feeling where I was like, oh, man, I really want to be at the Capitol. It's where everything's happening. And then I kind of looked around and it was like silence. And you could hear some you could hear maybe a couple of sirens go by. But it was so serene. And I realized that I'm, I'm, I'm at the place where President Trump is watching all this happen. He told them to march to the Capitol and then he quickly went back to the White House and watched all this on TV. So what sticks with me in all of this is when things really hit the fan, when people's lives are at risk, when their journalists get punched in the face, when there are, when there are Capitol police um, th- that are being attacked by this mob and even when his own supporters are being shot to death. The president was able to watch all this from this from the safety of his of his home at the White House. And it sticks with me that in 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 times like this, when leaders create all this chaos, I think of Haiti, too, when all of these th- these things happen, um, the leaders don't largely have to suffer the consequences of the chaos that they've created. And that, to me, is a thing that sticks on sticks about Wednesday. It, it makes me think of the dictators in from from Haiti who were able to move to Paris afterwards and kind of live out their their good lives. President Trump is going to go to Florida or to New York somewhere and, and be in this gilded, um, safe place, likely protected by Secret Service for the rest of his life, right? So I think that as we think about what this next stage of Trumpism is and where he goes from here, he's going to be fine. It's whether or not the country is going to be okay. So, but that, But does that have to be the case? There is... There are legitimate questions about legal jeopardy, not only for those who participated in the action of the of the violence last week, but but for those who encouraged it, Um, not to mention all of the other various investigations, not just at the federal level, but at the but at the state level for Trump himself uh, that that existed before all of this happened. I mean, listen, we all know how Al Capone was brought down, right? It was the tax man. And a lot of people, a lot of people believe that ultimately a black woman is going to be his undoing, Letitia James in New York, that she is going to dig into all of the tax um, issues that he's he's had. She's going to be looking into his tax history and that that's what's going to land him behind bars. That, you know, even if there were to be a pardon, that's for federal crimes. That is not going to cover um, any state tax issues. So well, to TBD, but that would be, that would be um, some karmic justice, <laughs> I should say. Um, uh, Yamish, thank you for joining us. I hope you know that we are really, really so proud of you and everything that you're doing. And we are lifting you up. We know how hard your job is. I, you know, you are loved, you are prayed for, and you are supported. So I hope you feel that. Well, thank you so much. And it was, a, it was a joy to talk to you all. And to process all of this that that we all witnessed. It was traumatic and it makes it makes me feel a little better that we could just talk it through today. Hey, don't forget to subscribe and please leave us a five-star review. And the conversation continues on social media. Please follow us on Twitter and Instagram at runtellthis underscore. Check out new episodes every Wednesday. Run Tell This is an independent production of Mara Scampo Inc.